Hi, everyone. Welcome back to the PSPDG podcast. Uh, my name is Ian McLaughlin, and I am a sixth-year PhD student in the uh, Neuroscience Graduate Group here at uh, the University of Pennsylvania. And I am once again joined uh, by my uh, former podcast uh, chatting partner, Liana Vakari, who has just returned from a fellowship with the Mir Zayan, uh, uh, well, the Mir Zayan Fellowship with the National Academies of Sciences. So uh, welcome back, Liana. Thank you. Um, so I guess first I wanted to talk a little bit about what the National Academies of the Sciences, Engineering, and Medicine are. Of the Sciences. Okay, yes. got it. <laughs> um, so they start out with the honorary organizations at the top, National Academies of Sciences at the top. It was chartered in 1863 by President Lincoln. What? Uh, because wow. he wanted independent advice on science for the government because he didn't feel like he was getting uh, good advice from the sources that he had at the time otherwise. That's mind-blowing. I had no idea that it went back that far. Yeah, yeah, apparently. And so then I think it was more in the mid-1900s that the National Academies of Engineering was developed. And then there was the there was an, there was an affiliation, not really affiliation, there was a, a separate section for medicine that more recently became the National Academy of Medicine. Mm. And those three are the honorary organizations, and people get inducted into those by being elected by current members. Um, so the Academy of Sciences at the top, this structure is a little bit like a diamond, where the Academies of Sciences at the top, engineering and medicine, are at the middle level. And then the National Research Council is on the bottom. And that encompasses seven divisions, the Division on Behavioral and Social Sciences and Education, the Division on Earth and Life Studies, the Division on Engineering and Physical Sciences, the Health and Medicine Division, which came from what used to be, I think um, it originally was the medical branch before it became the Academy of Medicine, hmm. uh, the Transportation Research Board, and the Gulf Research Program. And those seven sections are subdivided into boards, I think, other than tr the Transportation Research Board and the Gulf Research Program. Those are a little bit special. But I was on the Ocean Studies Board in the Division on Earth and Life Studies. Okay, so, so let me ask you, as you were applying for this fellowship, and we'll talk about like your sort of experience applying for it, mm -hmm. did you have to target a specific... Yes, so uh, you had to choose your top three um, boards that you wanted to be on. Mm. And... I don't remember what the third board I was looking at, uh, but the board on atmospheric and science, something. <laughs> <I don't laughs> Some environmental, exactly. environment related. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so I was looking at environmental uh, things, all within the Division on Earth and Life Studies for me. And this was reasonably close in sort of topic or focus to your um, thesis project. One of the projects that I ended up working on was, but okay. they could be very different. So one... Um, one of the other fellows, she is a um, bioscientist of some sort, but she was working on the Board of Women in Higher Education. Oh, okay. Or high, yeah. Um, so you can branch out. Yeah, absolutely. Like it, As long as you are convincing about why you want to work on a particular board uh, and why you have the background for it, I don't think you have to be pigeonholed. Um, and so like I was uh, working on two projects, one which was close to my field and one which was not something I ever had studied before at all. Um, so I can get into that after I describe a little bit what the boards do. Yeah, that's great. Um, so the boards each have standing committees that help them, help the staff uh, 
figure out what topics are important in the field. And then the staff can arrange and manage uh, talks and workshops and forums and roundtables and consensus studies. And so all of those are uh, involve inviting experts uh, to volunteer their time to discuss the issues at hand. And uh, so workshops and roundtables are more like one-off events, and those do produce proceedings that summarize what those experts think about a particular topic. Um, but consensus reports have a contracted statement of task that's agreed upon by sponsors, and there's often multiple sponsors on a particular project. So and what, what kind of sponsors, who would they be? Um, so I think approximately 70% are sponsored by government agencies. Ah, okay. But independent um, nonprofits or foundations can do that too. Um, but so they do try to dilute the influence of individual sponsors to maintain the strictly non-biased, um, non-partisan uh, reputation of the academies. Uh, so, and, and so the, the sort of the work product of all of these things are recommendations from the National Academy of Sciences for specific legislation? Uh, the consensus studies, yes, absolutely are recommendations by the academies. And not everything necessarily works directly for policy, um, but policymakers do like it when the recommendation lens can be directly lifted and turned into political uh, or bills. Um, so we did have a former fellow who com came, who had worked in, uh, I think he had done the Congressional AAAS Fellowship. And so a different fellowship. Yes. Yeah. Um, and he said that they did like being able to just take the language from the recommendations and turn it into policy. So one of the consensus studies that came out recently was about lowering the blood alcohol content limit uh, for legal drunk driving mm. as a recommendation for lowering or decreasing the number of deaths by drunk driving. Uh, fr from right now, I guess it's 0 0.08 to 0 0.05. So that's a recommendation. And not all of them are like as specific as that. But anyway, so like I was saying, the consensus reports, like they, it's, um, they have a very specific statement of task that they're assigned uh, that's agreed upon between the sponsors and the academies. And then the staff will help, uh, will go through the literature to help to figure out and, and use the resources of the, the standing committees to figure out who should be on the committee for that particular report. So who meaning like what scientists or, yes. or experts in the yes. field? Yeah. So it, it doesn't have to necessarily, it doesn't have to be an academic. They can also be industry or right. um, governmental. Uh, well, I'm not sure about that, but. Um, so experts yeah. that are engaged in the, the actual, the work of whatever this kind of evaluation would yeah. regulate essentially, yeah. right? And those committees are open for public comment. Um, there's a period where people can say that they agree or disagree with a person being on the board as an expert in that feat in that topic. This is like as a citizen? Yes. Wow. Huh. Yeah. Um, and what is that? Is that like via the web? Somehow? Yeah, they have oh. a website. And the committee uh, during their first meeting has to address all the comments that they get about who should or shouldn't be on the committee. What kind of volume of comments are we talking about? Here? I don't know. And I'm sure it, it varies uh, <laughs> yeah. incredibly on, on different ones. Um, That's interesting. Huh? I have no idea. So I guess um, one issue that has arisen about the consensus reports is that they take a very long time to produce. It can be a year, maybe up to two, depending on how things go. Um, wow. And, and I mean, uh, uh, and this fellow, the fellowship that you did is three months, right? Yeah, it was 12 wow. weeks. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, not everybody was able to work on a consensus rep report mm. at all. And I was lucky enough to be part of two, um, one which was nearing the end and one which was just starting. 
And so my mentors did, they did try to do that. Um, to give you ex- experience on both ends. Of, yeah, yeah, yeah. A longer process. Yeah. Um, but generally, the process of what, what the committee says, all that kind of work product is confidential because they don't want there to be any uh, discrepancies with what is produced as the recommendations. Mm-hmm. So while I can tell you that I got to attend some committee meetings, I can't tell you about what was really Ooh. discussed in Oh, you'd have to kill me. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if it's that dramatic. <laughs> but they also do have open sessions in some other committee meetings because um, the meetings are as much about making sure that the committee has a chance to get information that they need from other experts in the field. Uh, and they can have... Um, yeah, people came come to give talks, and that kind of information is public, on so the public can also attend those. And so, like, just as as a citizen, I assume these are mostly people around DC, yeah, because right? that's where the National Academies of Science of the Sciences <laughs> uh, is, right? And so, but where do they find it? It's all based on the web. They see a website, and they're having these uh, meetings, and then citizens yeah. can come and comment. Yeah, and I think some of them are recorded. Um, for webinars and, and such, but I don't know off the top of my head about all, sure. all of them. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, so like I said, I was part of two consensus studies on the Ocean Studies Board. I was helping out with them. And one of them was about dispersant use in oil spills. And that one is the one that was more close to my dissertation topic. And, and um, so what was your dissertation topic? So I was studying what bacteria did at oil-water interfaces. But the point was I was funded by the Gulf of Mexico Oil Spill Research Initiative. So that was the BP yeah. crisis, right? Yeah. yeah. And so that the whole Deepwater Horizon is kind of what spurred this study as well um, because there was use of subsea dispersant injection at the Deepwater Horizon wellhead. And that was a relatively new way of dealing with oil spills because it was also a new type of spill and they just want to understand what the best practices are for using dispersants in that situation um gotcha so you had some relevant experience to to bring to the table so i think they were already working on the writing of the report at that point uh it was not i mean so it's fairly far along so they had had their meetings they'd had their discussions yeah so they have like one or two meetings left or something like that um but I was familiar enough with the literature that I could take in that kind of information and uh, help edit mm-hmm. more easily than I would in another in another field. So that was helpful. Um, but I guess so what was kind of interesting about that, I had no real clear idea before this what a statement of task about that topic might be, but just kind of examples of things that they're covering are assessing where it's effective and, you know. Um, like under what conditions? Yeah, under effective. what conditions it's useful to yeah. have dispersants. And then also um, having a more consistent protocol for toxicity testing, for accuracy and for Among wildlife? Uh, for wildlife and, and people. And humans, yeah. okay. Um, for first responders and, sure. and anyone. Local who communities, yeah. fishing communities. Exactly. Right, right. Yeah. So... It's bigger than just saying, should you use dispersants, yes or no? Right, yeah. <laughs> um, which was the slightly simplistic view I might have thought when, when I went in. So um, so, so then, you can more effectively weigh the costs and the benefits. Yeah, exactly. Right. Exactly. Okay. Um, so the other project that I uh, was on was the 
novel interventions for coral reef resilience. And so this is more talking about the effects of acidification and bleaching events rather than things like fishing and um, normal pollutants. Um, and they're, I guess what I learned at the first committee meeting for that is that the corals are in pretty bad shape. Right. Um, there was one reef manager from Florida who was saying, we need anything you can give us about uh, helping the, the reefs survive because things are pretty bad. Mm -hmm. um, and for that project, I had no idea about anything to do with coral, really. Um, but I learned about a lot of the literature because I sorted through information from this massive uh, string query that we did to start the start the report. And um, fr from what um, uh, like databases or, or where, where do you draw your information? I don't remember if this was. Or do you just cast science. a really wide net? So I mean, the the National Academies actually have a research library who would set up a query like this to help for for a literature search. So um, they asked like what time period, what kind of the keywords, and there was a little bit of a back and forth about what keywords would be useful. And uh, See, we're so spoiled, we, we just type it into PubMed and like- <laughs> <laughs> Well, <laughs> we I mean, we can do that, but they want to make it as systematic as possible. Sure. And, uh, and replicable so that they can say this was a thorough literature search mm -hmm. and um, this, this is, is what you find when yeah. you use these search parameters. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, so, and like I went through that literature to sort it into the kinds of information, um, some of the bins that are relevant to the statement of task, and then I also did some personally more targeted literature search, typing it into Google Scholar, mm -hmm. <laughs> um, and summarized the information from those targeted pieces for one of the committee members. So, gotcha. Okay. So, so in terms of like. You doing this work? I mean, you know, tell us how, how it works. Like, you have a boss of some sort of. Mm -hmm. uh, I had a cubicle. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Okay. Good. Uh, and a work. It was called a workstation. And uh, so, uh, in some senses, uh, I heard this one woman talk about a situation, kind of like the position as a program associate. Um, sorry, a program officer is what my mentors were. Mm -hmm. um, That's, that was their title. Yeah. Yeah. And someone in a similar role was saying that it went from having one PI to having 15 PIs <laughs> uh, because that's what's, uh, what a committee is like. Uh, um, it's, it is 15 PIs to some extent managing right. that. In some cases, quite literally. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, but with my direct mentors, we, we discussed tasks that needed doing to help the help the committee members. Um, and for me personally with these projects, it wasn't necessarily hugely different than what I would have done on a day-to-day -day basis as a grad student. Like I said, I did some literature search and mm -hmm. writing. I, I wasn't doing any data analysis or compilation, but... Um, it was more like like preparing to write a review or yeah, something like that, right? Yeah. yeah. So it um, like. But so different fellows had different projects. Uh, we're working on putting together workshops or um, one... One of the other fellows did something that was pretty interesting. She was in the, the health and medicine division, and she was saying that she, her task was to, I think it was called 508 text. I don't remember, but it was about making figures accessible to people who are um, blind. Oh, wow. Um, hmm. And describing the text 
or, or describing the figure in text that didn't just re- reiterate the caption, but actually making it an informative. Um, that sounds challenging. <laughs> yeah. And so writing these short blurbs that were informative. So she's like, she was doing that a lot. Um, another one was working more on putting together panels on, on international women in science and one on black men in STEM. Um, and see, there, these are all people who are working on like equivalent, your equivalent level. Yeah. But just totally different types of projects yes. for different. Yeah. Um, these were all all in my cohort of fellows um, who were just, they had different tasks based on whatever board they were on. Whatever board, right. So going back to what you were asking before about how you pick um, what board you go on, you can go on the website to look at the particular board and see what projects they're working on. And then also they did encourage you to reach out to uh, board member like the the program officers to ask them a little bit about uh, what they've got going. Um, I did not do that. I was lucky enough to uh, get a good placement anyway. Um, but uh, you can always find out what other things are happening. So when but, you say a good placement, a placement that you enjoyed. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, and so and just fit well with my background and sure right your expertise and yeah yeah. um so you know we chatted every now and then over twitter uh, Mm -hmm. as you were doing the fellowship and uh, my sense was that you were enjoying yourself (laughs) absolutely and so so now compared to the triple as um policy fellow uh fellowship Mm -hmm. it's it's shorter much shorter so this was 12 weeks and there's also far fewer of us oh there are fewer 23 of us total interesting okay um so from what i understand the congressional AAAS fellowship is one year. The executive branch AAAS fellowship can be up to two years, depending on your interest in staying, funding available, um, and compatibility with, <laughs> with the executive branch. <laughs> well, or, or the with, the, where, with your office. Oh, yeah, of um, course. Yeah. And I think that because of how short the Mirzion Fellowship was, we became very close. And we did a lot of things because we had a limited time to do it. So it was a very, very fast whirlwind experience. But I think that also made it pretty great in its own way. Um, So I I did a lot of social things with the other fellows. Uh, We went to a moonlit hike of the National Arboretum. we did brunch at people's places. Like it was, sure. it was a good group. And Everybody was on the same page. Yeah, like we're here to meet. Everyone would post things on Slack. Like I'm going to do this <laughs> tonight. Like anybody interested and people would go. Um, some of those were more science policy oriented than others. Um, but uh, like I went to a couple of panel discussions about climate issues, one at the Goethe Institute, one at the French embassy, and they had wine afterwards. At, at the French <laughs> at embassy? The French embassy, yeah. um, <laughs> But it was awesome. funny because they were having a wine tasting that night separate from the panel that I was at, but they were having Spanish wines. <laughs> I didn't understand. What's up, France? <laughs> <laughs> it just didn't make sense. Um, sure. But, but yeah, and so they really encouraged us to, do, to go to events like that um, and also to go to Senate and congressional hearings and Supreme Court hearings. So um, you and I had talked about the fact that I went to the Supreme Court hearing about gerrymandering in, in Maryland. And I got there at 5 o'clock in the morning. We were still like Oof. 30th in line. Um, wow. And it was cold. And did did you get a sense? Rainy. Yeah. Right. Did, did you get a sense of like who was in the line before you? <laughs> um, like who, who were the, were they reporters or? 
Because that is some serious dedication now, and interest. I think the press could get in uh, a privilege. Uh, um, I mean, there were some lawyers. I don't know. I don't know the people like way ahead. In front, there was one um, woman who worked in D.C. I don't remember where she worked. I think she was in some federal agency, and her father was in town. Um, hmm. And so they both went together. Or yeah, something like that. Uh, yeah. He had gone to another one before, but then they went to this one together. So these are just people who are super interested. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. 5 a.m. 5 a.m. And then, and so how familiar were you with D.C. before you started this? I had gone a handful of times. I mean, like I have a friend who went to American, uh, so I visit her once in a while. I went to the AAAS Science Diplomacy Conferences. Um, But otherwise, I mean, I hadn't walked around D.C. at all really before. I'd just been a handful of times. And so how how did you like D.C.? Uh, it was good. It was good. Um, I had a lot of decent, like I had some pretty good food, <laughs> but I, I do feel like Philadelphia is a little bit more continuous in the neighborhoods. Mm. Like I think things were a little bit more distinct in DC, um, a little further apart. But uh, and then and then so you said you had twenty three other people within your cohort, mm-hmm. right? Were they all essentially at kind of the same levels in their? No, actually, so. There were maybe a third to a quarter of us who were done with our PhDs. And um, so some are still working on their PhDs? Or? Yes. Oh, wow. Most are still working on their PhDs. One is applying to PhD programs. And so these three months occur over a summer, right? Hmm? Do, do, th- those three weeks, those three months, uh, three months, yeah. They occur over a summer, no? I just got back. Oh, yeah. Okay. So it just <laughs> concluded. Yeah. So yeah. It, it does fall. So they did. Apparently, once upon a time, they had multiple in a year. Um, oh, okay. But funding yeah. uh, had them cut it down to once a year. Um, so they had done summer internships for winter ones, maybe a fall. I don't remember if that's true. But hmm. um, yeah, so this was just January to April. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, okay. So these are PhD students who are like taking time off. Yeah. Like, a couple actually one defended while we were there and a few are defending in like imminently or one defended like a couple of weeks ago right after we got back so it is it is kind of crazy it's pretty intense yeah <laughs> and so were they mostly science related or exclusively science related phds um social sciences as well as physical sciences um there were a fair few physicists there were hmm. a few bioengineers um civil engineer a criminologist okay oh it's interesting um and so so i mean like like i said with all those different uh, divisions there's a pretty wide variety of um topics so it doesn't have to be just physical sciences mm-hmm. and so to talk a bit about um applying do you do you get the sense that for somebody who's interested in applying should they target um should they should they target one of the groups that is most closely associated with their thesis work? Or, I mean, do in other words, do you think selection is based off of your background and its compatibility with what you're targeting? I think that it really helped in my case because of my um, familiarity with the Gulf of Mexico issue mm-hmm. that I got on the dispersant um, project. But I think that if you're really passionate about a particular topic... I think it's a perfectly reasonable thing to just express that and mm. apply for what you want to what you want to learn about. 
Okay, and then the the sort of the experience of applying. So, could you just walk us through what you know the various steps and what you know what your experiences were? I think it was a pretty straightforward uh, application. I think it was a fairly short statement. I think it was a pretty concise statement that we were required to to write, and then you had to choose which boards you wanted to be on, and then a couple of months later they let you know if you okay got so an interview I, I guess oh yeah got an interview okay and it was a phone interview first with uh dr Anne marie maza who's amazing she's the director of the program currently and um she did a quick interview and then the following week we had another interview with the people who would be the mentors and the board director um so, so I guess the the reason I ask is like you know when you say you know express a significant interest in mm-hmm. in this topic you know if maybe you don't have like directly applicable experience would so you would suggest that one do that in the statement yes. and then also in the interview yes okay yeah and I know I was in particular I was asked if I would be willing to learn about coral reefs and I was like absolutely like I have no reason not to. Uh, I <laughs> and I just like no, yeah. totally yeah. not cool. Um, but uh. <laughs> interesting. Okay, so um, so how much um exposure to sort of policymakers and you know um, to, I guess the government did you have? All right. So I guess to start out a little bit more about the actual fellowship, we started with a week of orientation, and that involved obviously uh, introduction from. Dr. Maza and other people from the academies. And then over the course of the fellowship, we had uh, a lot of different people come to talk to us, including um, Matt Horahan, who does, yeah. who. Um, he's, uh, he's with AAAS. I think he's the director yeah. of their of R&D uh, and budget. So I yeah, believe. so he came to t- talk to us about how the budget works, how the budget is made in DC. It's so um, funny you bring him up because uh, yesterday we we had this talk about the Penn Science Policy Group or Penn Science Policy and Diplomacy mm-hmm. Group, and I literally looked at Matt Horahan's Twitter, and like he just tweets out these perfectly you know illustrative graphs, yeah. you know funding. He's yeah. really up to date. Mm-hmm. So he he talked to us. So like that's just an example of the kind of person that we had, um, and generally they were people who were Mir Zion fellows. Some it was targeted to be ones who had worked on the Hill, ones who had um, gone into private in, uh, private sector. After having completed their fellowship. After having yeah. completed the fellowship. And we also got to have lunch with each of the presidents of the academies. Um, so Dr. Marsha McNutt, who was the first female president of the Academy of Sciences. Hmm. Um, Dr. Dan Mote, who's the president of the Academy of Engineering. And Dr. Victor Zhao, who's the president of National Academies of Medicine. And... Yeah, so we were also really, really heavily encouraged to do a lot of informational interviews with people. And we were told to, I mean, like, obviously we could connect to people who were speakers, other former Mir Zion fellows, and have our mentors connect us with people that we thought would be interesting. And I guess just the idea is if you think that their job is interesting, just ask them about their path. And then the last thing is say, do you know someone else who might be interesting for me to talk to? Mm-hmm. and build the network from there. Mm-hmm. And, but I mean, like, I think a huge part of it is how great even just the network of my cohort is going to be and how supportive we all are of each other already, even though it's only a couple of weeks after it being over. Um, but 
we're going to definitely stay in touch and probably see each other again at some point in our careers. So when you're standing out front of the Supreme Court before <laughs> 5 a.m. <laughs> yeah. Um, but so also one of the parts of the fellowship that we had was a group project. And this was a fairly open-ended thing. It started out with each of uh, the 23 of us had to propose a topic of interest. And then as a group, we had to call it down to five topics and then we're split into groups to each cover one of those five. And what we uh, ended up doing was one on big data, one on the commercialization of space travel, one on carbon capture and sequestration, one on artificial intelligence, and then the one that I was on was on mass violence and gun deaths. Right. So. Yes. I remember. So are you allowed to talk about the, the sort of ideas that you had? I don't see why not. Because <laughs> <laughs> it was interesting. So what we, are you, why don't you tell us? Well, so I mean, guess also I wanted to say that what was kind of cool was, again, because it was pretty open-ended how we presented these projects. Um, the commercialization of space travel, they did it a little bit as if it was a roundtable getting ready to um, write a statement of task for uh for a consensus study. And so this is basically happening as Elon Musk is sending up a giant rocket <laughs> with a car strapped to the front, right? Yeah, I think <laughs> I think that happened before before they um, they met. Oh, really? They pre- presented. 100%. And then what was cool, the carbon capture and sequestration one, they treated it as though it was a Senate hearing on a bill proposing subsidies um, for for carbon capture and sequestration. And so one of the um, members was the chairman of the committee, and he presented the bill, and then. Uh, the other three were witnesses. Two were for, and one was against. And then the rest of us were supposed to pretend that we were senators, and we could say which state That's and affiliation we had. It's kind of kind of like a mock trial for yeah. lawyers. Yeah. Huh. Um, so we did that. Um, but yeah. Okay, and then you worked on uh, gun violence. Yes. And yes. this is a particularly uh, animated topic this year. Very much so. Um, so I guess a couple of the things that I felt strongly about were that the mass shootings are not nearly the tip of the iceberg in terms of gun deaths. Um, That They certainly get a lion's share of the attention. Absolutely. Absolutely. But I think it's like 10% of the deaths um, by Total fatalities. Yeah. And so, I mean, this is a topic that was really interesting to you and, um, you know, it's something you care a lot about. So did you feel like you got to you know, explore this topic to your heart's content. Well, I mean, it was a little bit crazy because because of the Parkland shooting, there was so much information about gun violence just popping up. And every two minutes, I wanted to send one of my group members uh, <laughs> a new article saying, look at this information. Like, this is so frustrating. This is crazy. Or um, that's an interesting idea. So I am pro-gun control. Um but one thing I did find interesting was about the different um, concealed carry reciprocity and how you can become a criminal by driving across state borders if you don't know the laws about guns in the state next to you, um, even so if you have a permit in the state that you're from. Concealed carry reciprocity means if you have a, a permit in one state, you can go to another state and that permit is still active. But if that those relationships don't exist, yeah. then you no longer have a concealed carry permit. Yeah. Right. And I mean, the issue is that not all the states have the same uh, laws laws on permitting in the first place. So uh, that's why other places might not want to agree to reciprocity because they don't feel like it has the same st- standard. Mm-hmm. Um, but at the same time, I can understand why people would not want to be criminals just for uh, even if, like when they would have otherwise been legally owning and maintaining and concealing their yeah. firearm yeah yeah um but 
yeah, I mean, it was it was definitely a hard topic to try and condense into a 20 minute presentation because there was just so much information. And like I said, um, I wanted to bring up how much um, domestic violence and the presence of guns were a huge cause for homicides and how the presence of guns also increases the chance of suicides. Uh, and I think there were also statistics about more guns e equaling more police deaths, not to mention probably, uh, I don't want to, I don't remember statistics off the top of my head, sure. so I don't want to. Get too specific. Yeah. Right. So it, it's it's a complicated issue, even for somebody who is already interested in it. You yeah. sort of were uh, like a whole other new world or, or a whole set of factors that you hadn't considered beforehand mm -hmm. were revealed to you as yeah. you explored this topic. And, and so, also trying to distill it down into something that might be actually plausible in terms of policy is it, it's a little bit daunting. And so was was the initial the task was come up with policy that would reduce gun related fatalities. I mean, like I said, it was pretty open ended. They were just discuss. What can we do about yes. yeah. making <laughs> making fewer people suffer? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and so I remember, you know, as you're working through this, you know, you, we, we were chatting a little bit and you had this this idea of a potential policy. Yeah, so I I did this exercise. I wrote a brief on some recommend recommendations for to the CDC on policies that could work towards understanding the gun violence a little bit better. And obviously, I, I've already talked about some statistics that already are known, but um, my brief was for improving those statistics by... Um, I made three recommendations, the first of which was suggesting putting a box onto the death certificate that says, was there a firearm in this death or not? There is an analogous box right now for tobacco use. Did tobacco use contribute to the death? This is a little bit less direct than a firearm-related fatality. And technically, it should already be recorded on the death certificate, but it's an open-ended question as opposed to a yes or no, and if so, what kind? Um, and then my other direct recommendation was there is this program called the National Violent Death Reporting System. And as far as I'm aware, it currently exists in 42 states, not counting Florida and Texas and some of the uh, North Midwest states. Um, and this is trying to get a lot of information about the demographics of the victims and the perpetrators to understand why something happened. And I was in my brief recommending that it be expanded to encompass all of the states. Um, and then the other recommendation I had was a little bit about clarification between suicides and unintentional firearm fatalities, which is a category in the NVDRS system, and also um, between homicides by children, for example, and unintentional firearm fatalities, because apparently right now it's underreported the number of children who shoot people because it's um, categorized as a homicide, I believe, instead of mm, that may not be true. But I it's treated as a, as a different it, kind of it's not treated. It's not reported clearly enough to know how many kids are killing people <laughs> unintentionally. Right, basically. right. Um, and so oh, the, the, the end byproduct of all of this work would be we have much more granular understanding of 
the relationship between death and guns yeah. in the United States yeah. and who's dying and how why are they dying yeah. um, and it would be sort of cold hard statistics mm-hmm. right so and i mean one of the things that i that was that we were reminded of multiple times during the fellowship is that data doesn't equal uh, policy yeah data doesn't equal policy but it still helps. <laughs> <laughs> okay, um, and so, so uh, you know, as you said, you really enjoyed it. So, um, was there anything about the about the the fellowship, the experience that you know you you wish could have been different, or maybe you did differently, or you just didn't like about the the, the fellowship itself? Hmm. Well, okay. So one thing I meant to mention earlier was that, as well as them arranging for people to come to talk to us. Um, we were also allowed to say, hey, this would be an interesting person or topic to cover. Do you know somebody who could come talk to us about this? Or or can we get this particular person in? And if at least half of us or so were interested in having that person, they would arrange that. So we had, we had some flexibility in that kind of thing as well. Um, I don't know that there's anything in particular that I would say was bad about the, the fellowship. So I, I guess was a little hard when we couldn't necessarily take ownership of something but that was definitely like a project but that was definitely on a board by board basis and what what they had going because uh one of them i think i mentioned before was able to basically put together a workshop or panel um that just wasn't what my board was working on um so i think that goes back to the importance of knowing like reaching out to people beforehand to see what is possible, what is happening on a particular board and wanting to work on that. So being a little bit like more proactive about yeah. engaging in all the opportunities. Yeah. Right, right. Um, and otherwise, I think I probably could have taken a little bit better advantage of networking, but, you know. That's always possible, yeah. right? You can always do, yeah. Absolutely. Meet more people, right? Yeah. Um, okay, cool. And then so in terms of, you know, going forward, um, are you, do you intend to continue pursuing a career in policy at some level or? Yes, that is, uh, it did crystallize that for me. And I think what I kind of liked about it was that it felt like I was doing what I was doing with you guys in the science policy group here for fun on the side right. as my main uh, job. Right. So it definitely, it definitely helped make it clear that that's the direction I want to go. Okay, and then for for those of us who are are you know pretty certain that we want to, um, you know, do a similar type of fellowship, but you know we haven't really started, um, you know we're maybe even hearing about a, a policy fellowship for the first time. What kind of suggestions would you have for for people in in that position? So I guess just be curious, and I mean, uh, along the lines of the networking thing, everyone was so generous with their time and. Uh, wanted to help so uh, it really I even though I still have to get over it myself to some extent it, it doesn't hurt to ask because people have have been so nice about wanting to share their experience and I mean it's not like you're going up to them and saying hey do you have a job for me it's like I think what you do is cool can you tell me about it and that can help you figure out what kind of work you'd want to do and that would help make it a little more focused when you talk about what you want to work on in the policy space. And that's not to say that you have to pigeonhole yourself, but just thinking about what things you care about in that realm. 
And then like like practically speaking, like, okay, I'm sitting on my computer. I just heard you say, be curious. Should I type into Google science policy fellowship? And yeah, <laughs> no. So there are a variety of lists. Um, there's also a science policy jobs uh, Twitter account. Um, the, if you want to go straight to working for a congressional person, I think there's a Senate placement jobs Twitter account also. And Duke has a list of science policy jobs that are for a variety of levels. And I think you can even go on LinkedIn and, and type science policy. Those aren't quite as curated, although a lot of the ones on the Duke website have come from LinkedIn, frankly. Um, but yeah, a, a lot of different places have lists of different policy fellowships. Different scientific societies have them. So, for example, ACS... Um, American Chemical Society sponsors one of the congressional fellows um, for AAAS uh, with the con uh, sorry with the AAAS cohort. Um, so, like the Society for Neuroscience, the American Institute of Physics, like all these various groups will have, yeah, or no, maybe not all know, of them, but a lot of them yeah. will have a sort of a mm -hmm. sponsored fellow that mm -hmm. will be able to particip participate in a lot of the same policy. Yeah, but I activities. think there are definitely fellowships in places that. I'm still not aware of. Sure, right. Um, I've seen things in my searches every day. That's not something I saw before. So, but the uh, the NAS Policy Fellow Fellowship is a good place to start. It was a, it was a very good experience. I would definitely recommend it to anybody who can. And I think they will be accepting applications this summer. They will have details about that next month, and it will again be for January to April of 2019. Awesome. Well, Liana Vakari, thank you very much for uh, telling us about your experience. Thank you for having me.